0: Amen. You may be seated. I hope you all have your Bible with you today, although I'm doubtful. We've been uh, talking as elders. We'd like to encourage a lot more Bible carrying. You know, we print the texts uh, in the bulletin, but it's good to have the the Word of God in your hand, among other things, it allows you to kind of look around at what's going on in the surrounding text and not just have the little section that we've kind of snipped out for the bulletin. Today I want to read, uh, as we continue in our sermon series on the Nicene Creed, I want to Read two texts, one from Matthew 16 and then from Ephesians 2. Matthew 16, first. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptizers, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ From Ephesians 2, Therefore remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both bless our hearts now as we hear this in jesus we pray father amen so when i say the word church what's the first thing that comes to your mind right some of you're going to say well aren't we in one and some of you are saying oh no no the church is not a building the church is what it's people well you know you can take one of a couple of different approaches to that idea that the church is people one, we could say, is maybe a little bit more organizational because you very quickly realize we can't leave it at that. The church is not just people. There are 10 billion people in the world. The church is certain people organized in a certain way. There are people who believe this. They practice that. They assemble there. They're organized in some way. Other people take a different approach, not so much an organizational approach, but a more experiential approach, and they say, well, you know, the church is people who have experienced Jesus in some way. And, and these people on kind of the experiential side tend to be critical of the organizationalists. You know, you're just all into your structures and your organization and your institution. And it tends to be very authoritarian, very top-down, very exclusive, you know, you kinda of gotta to belong to that group or you're not really a, a Christian. They, they wanna focus on experience. But of course, the minute you try to define what experience and whether this experience is valid or that experience is not valid, And if you ever try to get these people who've had this experience together for any kind of shared worship or shared life, you start to realize very quickly organization is unavoidable. Now, along with the organizationalists and the experientialists, we also, of course, would have to talk about the individualists. There are so-called Christians who think the church is really optional, and they just opt for a church of one. Jesus and me, we are set. And fourthly, there are the consumers, who don't fit neatly in any of these categories. Consumers are people who really have no desire to be a part of an organization. They have no real desire to work out shared beliefs and shared practices. What these people want is just to show up on an afternoon like this, if it fits with their schedule, and they wanna feel good and feel inspired and maybe find some friends for their kids and enjoy a bagel, and that's pretty much it. That's their view of church. And all of this that I've been describing, I think highlights a real problem when you define the church as people. I mean, it is people, that's not entirely wrong, but if you start, in thinking about the church, if you start with people, you're probably going to miss what is actually the very most basic thing about the church. And the most basic thing about the church is that it begins not with people, it begins with God. I wanna talk about the creation of the church and the communion of the church today. We're talking about the section in the creed, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I wanna start by talking about the creation of the church. Do you guys see on page 17, or for that matter, there on, what is it, page 9, if you look at the creed, do you notice something really kind of freaky about this? Do you notice how right after saying three times, we believe in God, we believe in God the Father, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit, what's the next thing we say we believe in? I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now that is troubling, because... We just said we believe in God, now we're saying we believe in the church. And if the church is people, and we say we believe in the church the way we believe in God, how is that not blasphemy, putting people on a level with God? Well, that's why we need to be very precise in our thinking. The church is not just people. Brothers and sisters, please, let's get this together. The church is not just people, the church is a created people it is a people god has called and constituted to be a people by him by himself to put it very simply the church is a work of god christoph schwabel puts it this way he says the church is constituted by god's action and not by any human action are you with me it's dangerous to say i started a church we started a church, we gotta be careful because at its heart, the church is constituted not by human action, but by God's action. Schwebel says it is not, the church is not an association of people who have a shared taste for religion. It is not the creation of some kind of human community spirit. It is not a community devoted to a common cause or to the realization of a common aim. And in this, the church differs from other organizations. Jesus said, I will build my church. It is only as God's work that the church can be an object of faith. We believe in this work that God is doing right now, building the church, just like we believe in works God has done, like redeeming us from our sins. And we believe in works God will do, like raise us from the dead, amen? These are works of God. We believe in them because they're God's works. How does God build his church? How does he create the church? Well, it'll be no surprise to those of you who've ever read the first chapter of your Bible, Genesis 1, where God makes the world. It'll be no surprise that God creates the church just the same way he created the world. He creates the church by his word and the moving of his spirit. And in the Matthew text we just read, you see that this creation by the word and the spirit of God, it starts with the apostles because when Peter says Jesus, I know who you are. I know what you're here to do. Jesus says, you're a blessed man because that was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. That was not revealed to you by human beings. God, by the Holy Spirit, spoke to Peter and made it clear to him, revealed to him who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do as the Christ, the Messiah. And Paul, there in the Ephesians text, he says that that revelation that God gave to Peter qualified him to be one of the foundation stones of the church. Now, Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Paul expands on that in Ephesians 2.20. Look at it so you know I'm not just saying this on my own. Paul says to the Ephesian church, you guys are built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, and the prophets with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. But the fact that God revealed to Peter who who Jesus was made him one of those foundation stones. On which Christ would build his church. And if you read on in the next two chapters of Matthew, Matthew 17 and 18, you find that along with his fellow apostles, James, John, the other nine, Peter, this is, it isn't just this moment at Caesarea Philippi, it, God has more for him, and he is an eyewitness, for example, of who Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, we call it, when Jesus suddenly like lights up with the glory of God, James and John are there to see it with him. They are eyewitnesses. Yeah, this is who Jesus is. He is the Son of the Father sent to save the world. And Jesus tells Peter here in the Matthew text we read, and later in chapter 18, he says it to all of the disciples. He gives them what he calls the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose people. Now, what does that exactly mean? It means that they, having received revelation of who jesus is and what his mission is they're going to go and preach that gospel to the world and as they preach that good news jesus is lord jesus is the christ they're going to be opening god's kingdom to everyone who believes in jesus loosing them from their sins god says if you have the son you have life and it will also be true for those who reject jesus You are shut out. The gospel says if he who does not have the Son does not have life, the wrath of God abides on you. And so the kingdom is shut to you if you do not believe in Jesus. And you are bound over to God's judgment. And all that happens through the preaching of the gospel by the apostles. And at Pentecost, of course, the Spirit comes in a whole new way and he takes that gospel that the apostles are preaching. Jesus is Lord and Christ. And the Holy Spirit puts that gospel in every language. I love the fact that Peter gets the first sermon. You know, he was the first to get the revelation. He's not the last to preach. He's not the only rock on which the church is built. He's one of the foundation stones. But he gets the first sermon, and the Spirit of God works with Peter and the apostles that day as the gospel's going forth now in all these different languages. And we are told at the end of Acts chapter 2, the Lord added to the church. He built the church, and he's been building it ever since. That is how God builds, by the gospel and the spirit working with the word. Well, what is it? What is this thing that Jesus is building, that God is creating? Jesus is building one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So as the word and the spirit are at work in the world, what comes forth is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This people whom God is creating, they are one because they have one Lord. They are holy, because that Lord died for their sins. They are apostolic, because they hold fast to the gospel preached by the apostles, whom Jesus authorized to preach. And they are Catholic, which immediately wigs Presbyterians out. It's very simple, really, this word. It's from a Greek word, kafalu, roughly, uh, which just means kind of in general, the Catholic Church is just the universal church, it's the general church, it's not one particular little congregation, it's the whole thing. And it's interesting that Peter on the day of Pentecost, as he's preaching that first great sermon, he says that the gospel, God's saving work through Jesus, he says it is to, it's for those of you who are near and it's for those who are far off. To the ends of the earth, because God is going to have a people, a church from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And it's interesting that Paul picks up that very language here in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Look at verse 13. And he says, Yes, behold, it's true. You now in Christ Jesus, you Gentile Ephesians, you who once were far off, look, you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. A Catholic church, it's for the world. That's why we're sitting here today, because Jesus is building a Catholic church. A one holy Catholic apostolic church. Now I want you to notice something very crucial. Because the church is God's work, he alone sees it in its entirety. He alone sees it in its completion. The finished, he says, Paul says here at the end of that Ephesians text, he says you're being built together together You're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And God sees the finished thing. God knows every stone in this temple. He sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He knows every one of the people he's going to build into this thing, and he knows what it will look like when it emerges as the complete new Jerusalem in the end. He sees the entirety of it, the totality of the redeemed. John Webster says the church is saved humanity. That's what it is, it is saved humanity, the social reality of salvation. And God alone fully knows the fullness of his salvation work. That's important. But at the same time that it is known and seen ultimately only to God, Paul tells us here that the church is also being built. Look at verse 22, the last verse in our reading. The church is being built Of very real people on earth he says you all and I could say this this afternoon you guys sitting here you are being built together so even though God alone sees the church as it fully truly is the church is being built of very real people on earth and as such it is visible also to us now we see it incompletely I look around in 2023 and I see a little you know some of what God is doing I don't know all those who are God's chosen throughout all the ages, that's known only to God, but we can see some of what God is building. It's incomplete, it's far from perfect, but the church is here. It is on the earth, it is being built of people. Schwabel puts us so well, he says, the human actions, the human actions made possible by God's invisible constitution of the church are very much visible and even more audible the human actions that are made possible by God's invisible constitution of the church, those human actions are very much visible and they're even more audible. So what should we be looking for as you start thinking about like where's the church? How do you know who, the, who are the real people of God? Let's turn from the creation of the church to the communion of the church now. Let's find the church. When you think about the identifying marks of the church, if you wanna go out in this world and say, here are God's people. The temptation, I think, is to immediately start wanting to draw a circumference. Right, I, I find myself tempted to do that. I, when I wanna say these are the people of God and those are not, I wanna create a great big outer boundary line and if you're inside that boundary line, you're God's people and if you're outside that boundary line, you're not. We can clearly identify who's in or out we have a nice circumference. That is actually the wrong way of trying to define the church. The proper way to start identifying God's church that he's building is to locate the center of it, the core of it. And if what creates the church, if what calls the church into being is what? Christ the head, how does he do it though? What is the thing that calls us into existence? But what's he use? Specifically what? The word. It is the word of God that calls the church into existence. So if you wanna start finding the church, you wanna locate the church on earth, the question you must begin with is, where in the world is the word? The first mark of the true church is the faithful preaching of the gospel. If you are in a so-called church that is not faithfully preaching the gospel, it is not a church. The core of the church is the preaching of the word of God, God's, specifically the gospel, God's saving work through Jesus the Christ. That work of God by which we are called out of darkness, called out of this alienation that the Ephesians used to be in, and we are brought near into the very family and kingdom of God through Jesus' work, that's the gospel. And of course, the entire Bible, you say, man, pastor, I've read 66 books, this is dense a lot more going on in there than just the gospel true, but what's really going on if you read the Bible is that the whole of scripture gives you all the facets. It reveals the whole plan of God for his kingdom, how he kind of got us ready for it, how it came with Christ, how then it's flowing out into the world, so you need the whole scripture. Not that you have to have a church that preaches every single verse of the Bible all the time. It's all centered around Christ and the gospel, but all of the world is shining light on that gospel. That's the first mark of the church. And since the Bible makes it extremely clear that God extends his word visibly, tangibly, through what? What do we have besides the word? God extends that promise, extends that word through what we call the sacraments. People have called the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper visible words, edible words, words that splash over your body and nourish your body and your soul. And the sacraments are the second mark of the church. And you wanna find the true church, you need a place where the word of God is being preached and the sacraments are being administered according to the word of God. That is what the church on earth unites around. We are united, brothers and sisters, around the truth of the gospel, not just positive feelings. Yes? Sometimes the positive feelings are up and down, but the word does not change. That's what we unite around. That is the basis of our unity. Paul says later in Ephesians, he says, there is one Lord, Jesus. There is one faith, the gospel. There is one baptism. We have all received the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in baptism. That is is what we unite around. That is also what we submit to together. Because the word is the basis, not just of visible unity. It is the basis of visible holiness. We are obedient together to the Word. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, said to the Father, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. And as we are gathered around the Word, every chance we get, we are soaking it in, and we are learning how to live according to the Word of our Father, that is holiness. And that will be the buzz in a healthy church. What has God spoken about himself? What has God spoken about His work? What has God spoken about us? What has God spoken about His will for our lives? That's going to be the buzz in a church that is centered on the Word and sacraments. But now we need to say something else. Because the Word itself tells us that some things in the Word are of first importance. You get these things wrong you have a different gospel, which is actually not a gospel. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you have lost the gospel. If you believe that you not only must believe in Jesus but must also be circumcised, you have a different gospel. You are adding things to what God has said is utterly adequate to say, which is the finished work of Jesus. So there are matters of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and so on. There are core 1st importance, essentials. But guess what? If there are things of first importance, what does that mean? It also means there must be some things of lesser importance. They're not unimportant. They're just less important. And these are things on which real Christians and true churches can reasonably charitably differ. That's actually okay. And in a healthy church, along with a really quite fierce commitment to the word and sacraments, there's going to be a generous Catholicity. By Catholicity I mean an openness to all of God's people. Like you don't have to be an Orthodox Presbyterian for me to call you brother or sister, for example. We certainly want to require unity on the essentials. I mean, there, again, there are certain things, if you don't believe these, you're not a Christian. And when it comes to the people that preach, you know, pastors, elders, etc., a particular church might want to have much stronger standards. Like, we want people to know, when you come here, this is kind of our doctrinal system. This is how we do things. We want to be on record. and We want our officers to be behind that. So that's okay. But for the rank and file, just sort of ordinary follower of Jesus, we do not expect, while we expect unity on the essentials, we do not expect uniformity on everything else. We just don't. Unity on the essentials, but there's not uniformity on everything else. Christians, real Christians, they differ in knowledge. Some know more than others. They differ in maturity. Some are further along. In their understanding of God and his ways, than others. They differ in conviction. Some things for some Christians are like, man, I found this in the scriptures and I am camping on that. Other people are like, you know, I don't feel quite as strongly about it. They differ in practice, they differ in context. I mean, the way that we work out Christianity here on Long Island is not the same way you work out Christianity in another country where maybe there are just completely different social conditions. Errors remain. We're still wrong about some stuff. We're still learning. If it's essential stuff, we need to get that corrected because it's a false gospel. Other stuff, you know, we're working out, understanding the word, interpreting the word, growing together. And that's the point. We're still growing. And so, in a healthy church, unless someone is outright denying the faith, we treat those among us who are in error, who are immature. We treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ and we call them back to the word and we study and we help and we encourage and we, we dig. I mean, brothers and sisters, I don't need to say this to you, I don't think, but if you are one of these zealots who disfellowships everybody who disagrees with you, your view of the church just does not match God's. And we practice this generosity, this Catholicity we could say, not just in matters of faith non-essentials, but also in matters of life. While we are unified in holiness, we are, after all, saints. We bear God's name. We better be serious about holiness. Again, there's not uniformity in every way that we practice holiness and in our sort of maturity in holiness, and there's remaining sin in every Christian and every Christian church. Now, As with matters of faith, there is unrepentant sin that ultimately rejects Jesus as Savior and rejects Jesus as Lord. Look, man, if you are in love with a sin for which Jesus died, and no matter how many times you understand from the word of God that he hates this and he wants it to stop, and you hold on to it and you coddle it and you love it, you are basically saying, I'm not really interested in being saved from it, which is a very dangerous place to be. But the reality is we are all wrestling with sin. And short of someone just saying, I will not obey Jesus, I don't care, we treat our fellow sinners in the church as brethren. And we call them back to the word, as we call ourselves back to the word. We call them back to their baptism. You ever read Paul's letters to the Corinthians and the Galatians? These churches were train wrecks. And he opens up with such gentleness and he affirms, You are saints. And he calls them to what they are in Christ. It's just an amazing thing to watch. And we must remember that this gospel around which we unite is a gospel of grace. God reconciled you and me, both of us, to himself, Jew and Gentile. He reconciled us to himself while we were his enemies. That sets the terms for how we relate to each other, which is why some, I think, very, very, judiciously have said there was a third mark of the church, not just the word, not just the sacraments, but what? Love, love is a mark of the church. Now I want to close with two practical implications of this fact that Christ from heaven is invisibly but very truly building his church. The first implication of this, very important, in our time Christ is building his church that keeps us number 1 it keeps us from trusting in in trusting in visible churches or despairing of visible churches knowing that Jesus is building his church keeps us from trusting in visible churches or despairing of visible churches like trinity because since pentecost As you probably know, if you've ever read any church history, people have tried throughout history to point to something here on earth and say, there's the true church. Which is usually accompanied by, and you need to submit to the leaders of that church if you want to submit to Christ, right? Like if you're not in that organization of of churches and you're not following those leaders, you are outside the true church. This has happened so many different ways. It can be very institutional, kind of like in, in the Roman Catholic Church, you know, you must submit to the Roman Church or you are really outside of Christ, although that's in practice not always quite so simple. So there can be an institutional form of this, or there can be a very sectarian, this is kind of what I grew up in, where, no, we have had a revelation from God, which allows us to be outside all of these corrupt, visible churches, and we're over here in this holy, pure remnant, you know, who are the truly spiritual people outside of all these corrupt organizations, and we can, you know, say we over here in this little remnant, we are the pure, true thing, and if you're not one of us, you're part of the corruption. And we disfellowship people that way. And the fact that the Lord of the church is beyond all visible churches. He is not captive to any visible church on earth. And the fact that the true church in its entirety is visible only to God, that means, beloved, that we not only may, we must regard all visible churches and all visible church leaders as the imperfect fallible things that they are they are not christ they are not the vicar of christ it is simply not the case that you must be a part of this structure or group or you are not a christian that is false you must be a part of the church that christ is building but it's not true that you must be a part of trinity to be saved if you're not part of this visible structure on earth you're outside the kingdom. That is false. But at the exact same time, we don't despair of the visible churches. Even though it's not that you have to be part of this particular group over here in order to truly be part of the church, and everyone else is out, at the same time, every visible church, it is a site where Jesus is truly building. It is a place, Trinity Church is a place where God is really doing this thing called building the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And what that means is, in the company of the visible saints without ever putting our trust in visible structures and our trust in visible leaders, we give thanks for this, we participate in this, yea, we submit to it, because that is what Christians do to one another, they submit to each other in the Lord and we seek to reform where there's a need for reform, as Paul says, out of reverence for Christ. Because we know that what's going on here, the gates of hell are not going to be able to withstand it. So we don't trust in, nor do we despair of, visible churches on earth. But there's a second implication. Knowing that Christ is building his church, this fuels commitment to a particular church without confinement to a particular church. It fuels commitment to a particular church without confinement to a particular church. I need to say here, first of all, that you cannot be committed to the head of the church without being committed to the body. You cannot be committed to Jesus and not be committed to the church. Do you understand that? There is no such thing as a Jesus and me and I don't need the church Christianity. That is false teaching that is a false conviction a lack of commitment to the church is a lack of commitment to Christ because Christ has united himself to the church which means if you are united to him you are united to his body that is non-negotiable in general but what people will say in response to that is oh I am committed to the church I'm just committed to the worldwide church I'm committed to the whole church, kind of out there, the Catholic church. I'm not committed to a local church. Which is just another way of saying that you're not committed. Because commitment, beloved, means being stuck with people when I wouldn't choose to be. That is literally what commitment is. Commitment is a relationship with teeth. It's a relationship where there are demands and claims and things imposed upon me that I can't just dodge. It has teeth. I've got skin in the game. That's commitment. Commitment is what does not happen when you are bouncing around churches to suit your taste. Commitment is what does not happen when you are scrolling around the internet for your church life. One of the very worst effects of the COVID pandemic on the church was the escalation of the idea that church is content. It's this website and this preacher and this thing over here and that thing over there and you can just start taking in content from your couch. That was a disaster for the practical doctrine of the church. The church is not content. I almost wonder sometimes if I should be putting my sermons online This is not content I'm delivering. We are seeking to be disciples under the word of God, yes? We're not sucking down content. Church is being disciples under the word and that means we all need the mutual, faithful, accountable relationships without which growth stays confined to the comfortable. See, I can surf the internet and be comfortable I can bounce around to 20 churches a year and be comfortable, but when I'm in mutual, faithful, accountable relationships, I can't be comfortable. Now I'm experiencing discipleship. And to train together in worship, to train together in bearing each other's burdens, to train together in forgiveness, to train together in seeking wisdom, to train together in mission, to train together in raising generations. This requires place and presence and participation over time. It is not a drive-by, drop-in operation. That's not church. Because Jesus is building his church. We're committed to local church life. But that said, we're not confined to it. This is utterly crucial, because I've seen pastors go the other way with this. Local church life suffers enormously when members are not receiving from the wider work of the Lord, and they're not contributing to the wider work of the Lord. People have asked me, can I visit another church? Please visit other churches. Can I listen to other preachers? Please. If I'm the only person you're listening to, you're in trouble. Feed, oh, sorry. Feed from the wider church. Not as content, be plugged in, be disciples with somebody in a real church but certainly draw from the wider body of Christ and contribute to it. I've had people say, that people come to us from churches where they were forbidden to do any Christian service outside of this local congregation. How selfish is that? You know, insularity is just another form of sectarianism. I want your gifts to be shared with the body of Christ. Not that what I want matters. Jesus wants that. It's what he gave you the gifts for. Jesus is building his church. It fuels commitment to a church, a particular church but we're not confined to that particular church. And so, enough, probably stepped on enough toes for one day, I believe, in one holy Catholic Catholic and apostolic church. And so, beloved, I just want you to look around. Behold the work of the Lord. Amen. Father, bless these things to our practice. In Jesus we pray. Amen.